This audio recording is of our regularly scheduled service, March 13th. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, we are going through, uh, I guess, what amounts to an Easter series called God is Greater, and it focuses on the last, uh, really, week of Jesus' life, which is kind of the back half of Matthew. We went through the first three quarters or so of Matthew uh, last year, so those are available if you want to catch up. Um, But we're in Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read beginning in verse 30. It says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's Word. So Matthew chapter 26 and 27 really records... Uh, the last few days of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion. And so last week, which would have been Thursday evening, uh, Jesus celebrated the annual Jewish feast of Passover with his disciples. And two days prior to that, as they were entering into Jerusalem, Jesus had told his disciples very, very plainly, as he had actually several times, that he would be delivered up to the authorities to be crucified. Now, at the Passover, uh, when he sat down uh, with his disciples, he fulfilled really all of Old Testament Scripture. And in this one meal, in this evening that we saw last week, he establishes a, a new and greater covenant. And he identifies himself as uh, the greater sacrificial lamb that the Passover really memorialized. And he makes a, a greater promise. We call it a covenant. He makes a greater promise. And that promise is that he 
will represent men before God as their substitute in life and in death for their obedience and for their disobedience. So we, we saw this idea of Jesus as the substitute. Now, the greater promise that Jesus makes was made necessary because of our man's great disobedience. Um, the law came in and it revealed just how broken and rebellious and sinful we were, how far short we fell. But fulfilling this promise, this greater promise that, that Jesus makes, is going to require what I'm calling a greater obedience. An obedience greater than any man could ever obtain or accomplish themselves. So after the Passover meal, uh, Jesus takes his disciples out to a garden. It's a place that he had been, for, been before. It's on the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It's very familiar. They'd been there several times. And as he does, one of his disciples, namely Judas, who has been revealed as the one who would betray him and join the plot to kill Jesus, kind of sneaks off by himself to bring the authorities in to arrest Jesus. He would know where Jesus was. Jesus wasn't trying to hide. He went to a place that was very common. As they get there, he tells the remaining disciples, particularly eight of them, I want you guys to sit here, stay here, and I'm going to go on a little bit further and pray. And in doing that, he invites his three closest friends, three kind of main disciples, the little circle of three, James and John and Peter, and he says, I want you guys to come with me as I pray. And so Jesus is visibly upset. He is visibly uh, troubled and even tells his friends, look, I am deeply troubled. I am sorrowful at a soul level. And he gets so visibly um, kind of troubled, upset, that in the midst of this experience, Luke 22 tells us that he's going to sweat blood. Now that may be literally, may be figuratively, but the point is he is sweating, he is stressed, he is anxious, and we find out that he is very grieved. And he is grieved and he is troubled because fulfilling this greater promise, as I said, is going to require a greater obedience than anyone had ever and will ever endure what he called drinking the cup of the covenant. If you remember, during the Passover, there were cups being passed and cups that were blessed. And he took one and said, this is the cup of the covenant, the one that will, will, my blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And if you know anything about Passover meals, there's actually four cups that kind of are passed or blessed at this time. And if you read in Luke 22, you'll see the different cups there. And the cup that Jesus is using when he says that, the one he lifts and says, this is my blood that's poured out through you for the forgiveness of sins is called, and has always been called, the cup of redemption. And he is considering this idea of redemption. So the redemption cup was the one that memorialized the escape from slavery in Egypt, of which the whole Passover meal was remembering. But that cup was really like, this is when we escaped, this is when the blood was poured out. Now, it's important to remember that the redemption that came, came as a result of God's wrath being poured out on Egypt. 
And it came through a series of plagues, and the last plague obviously was the slaughter of a lamb, and that plague, or that experience would protect them as the Lord came and killed the firstborn of every family in Egypt, and his wrath poured out in a way that that had never been experienced before, and a cry went out that had never been heard before. It was a horrible thing, but the people of Israel were saved by this lamb, redeemed by the blood. So in the garden, try to get yourself into Jesus' mind. He's thinking about this, and he is not troubled, though it would be understandable for any of us to be terrified about the physical punishment that is going to be inflicted. He knows is coming from professional executioners, the Romans. Crucifixion is ugly. Crucifixion is painful. Crucifixion is brutal. It is terrible. But that is not what is most troubling Jesus. It's not just the pain and the suffering, though we understand that would be and should be. What Jesus is most troubled by is the spiritual wrath. The spiritual wrath that God himself is going to pour out on him for the sins of the world. Now, the Bible calls Jesus, not just our substitute, but this big word, ready? Propitiation. And propitiation is, think of it this way, the wrath sponge. Jesus is going to absorb the wrath of God for our sin and the sins of the world. Now, fulfilling what he established as this greater promise, as I said, is going to require Jesus to willingly endure the agony that comes from burdening the guilt, facing the shame, enduring a cosmic separation from his Father, which is what sin does. So this relationship that has been for eternity experiencing the separation that the forgiveness of sin requires. And so what Jesus meditates on drinking this cup, we get to eavesdrop on what is a very intimate conversation between the Son and God the Father. And essentially, here's what Jesus says. Is there any other way than the cross? Is there any other way than the cross? And I need you to understand that this is a rhetorical question. And by rhetorical question, I mean Jesus is not asking to elicit an answer. He is asking it to make a point, and it's largely for us. See, Jesus' obedience, his willing obedience and willingness to take up the cross is the only answer to God's big sin problem. And you go... Isn't that our problem? Isn't sin our problem? Like, well, yes uh, and no. See, the Bible teaches, and this is, if you hear nothing else today, I want you to understand this, because this is essential to understanding why the cross. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over all that exists. He's authoritative over all things. And that he is right in everything that he does. It means he's righteous, right? And the Bible teaches that God, therefore, is just in all of his punishments, okay? But it also teaches that 
God loves his creation. Now this seems like a contradiction, right? And this contradiction of God is just in all his punishments, and yet he loves his creation, and he's authoritative, so we can't rebel against him without being punished. All these things seem like a contradiction. It produces a little bit of a problem for God, and I say theological problem. It's not really a problem for God. He has resolved it before the foundation of the world. But for us, it helps us understand. And here's the problem. How can a holy and sovereign God be just and kind towards sinners at the same time? How can he punish sinners and yet love sinners at the same time? How can he punish and kill sinners like they deserve to be killed and yet save them when they're dead, right? How does that work? You see, if you only have one or the other, if you only have forgiveness, if you only have love, what you have is this problem. God's forgiveness of our sin is a threat to his loving character. And yet, God's punishment for our sin is also a threat to his character. What I mean is this. It must be both. And so, before the cross is for anyone else, we need to understand that it's for God. It's for God to uphold his glory. For God to uphold his character. For God to display the glorious riches of his grace. I like how one pastor writer put it. He said, it is incomplete to say that Jesus died for you or for me or even for the world. Jesus died for God first. Jesus died for God first. Now, as Jesus prepares for this trial, as he has expressed his sorrow and is visibly upset, his friends are so concerned that they are sleeping. Which begs the question, though, that we should all ask if you read the Bible carefully, and that is this. How do we know what Jesus prayed? If all these guys were sleeping, who heard him? How do we have this recorded? Or maybe the better question is, why do we have this recorded? You see, Jesus spent, after he rose from the dead, about 40 days with his disciples. And in that 40 days, he explained a lot to them. And I believe that one of the things he explained to them or brought them to memory is say, guys, let me tell you what happened when you were sleeping in the garden. In other words, I believe that Jesus wanted them to remember this and to know what had happened, and he wants us to remember this. Jesus, I believe, wants us to learn something from this struggle and wrestling he had in the garden. And yes, Jesus accomplishes our salvation as our substitute, as our propitiation. That is important, and that's really what this is driving towards in the large story. But if we pause for a moment, we also see that Jesus is giving us an example to follow in our own difficult obedience, is what I'll call it. A difficult obedience. Follow with me. What's a difficult obedience? Well, before we get there, I want us to maybe appreciate for a second the realness and the rawness of Jesus' prayer in this text. It is comforting. There's an intimacy there and an honesty there that is comforting and should educate or inform how we engage and commune with our own 
Father. But this passage, I think more than any others, gives us great insight into the uniqueness of Jesus' divine humanity. Even though Jesus is completely unlike us as the Son of God, He was also made like us as the Son of Man. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Sit on that for a second. Consider all the ways in your entire life from youth to now where you have been tempted or where you were tempted this week in some sense, in every respect, and in every way Jesus has experienced that temptation and succeeded. He has honored God where we have dishonored Him. He has obeyed where we have disobeyed. In every respect, He has experienced temptation. That's why I can say, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as His disciples snooze among the trees... Jesus begins to ask some very deep questions about this one particular tree that he is going to hang on. You see that Jesus three times asks the Father if the cross can be avoided. Three times Jesus asks, if it cannot, your will be done. And three times it seems that the Father says nothing. Now, some have suggested that this is the one instant where, see, God doesn't answer his prayer. And I would suggest humbly that God has actually already answered it. He answered it a long time ago. And that Jesus is praying not necessarily for himself, but for us. Jesus is showing us, I think, in a very clear way what it looks like to reverently, and I say reverently and honorably and fearfully explore the limits of God's will. He is not struggling to accept it. This is not a matter of whether Jesus is going to accept God's purposes. It's a matter of whether God's purposes needs to include this cup of wrath. Jesus is asking whether his will needs to unfold this way through what amounts to something very difficult, a difficult obedience. Now, seeing that he is our example to follow, seeing as he has perfectly exemplified and lived a human life, okay, our experience with God is the same. Think about this. We are very apt, at least I am. Yes, Lord, I accept your purposes. I want to obey your purposes. Yes, Lord, I want you to be glorified. I'm sure we've used those words, you know, it's for God's glory. Yes, Lord, I want to experience the fullness of joy, right? I want to obey. I want God to be glorified. I want joy, but not this way. Right? 
I mean, yeah, let's do it. I'll obey whatever path you say. I, I know there's joy. Well, but that one? I mean, I'm eager for you to be glorified, God, but sure it's got to be this way? Maybe you've never asked that. I know I have. Often. The difficult obediences, and the nature of a difficult obedience is that it's difficult. And it's, it's those unexpected moments when God's will or God's purposes disagree with your own. It's when the plan for your life, I got this vision, this is how this life's going to go, this is how this year's going to go, this is how this month's going to go, this is how this day's going to go. And when suddenly God's sovereignty in circumstances conflicts with your plan. And even though I think our specific experience can't compare with what Jesus is enduring here, I would argue, consider what generally characterizes difficult obediences through what Jesus does experience. So what's a difficult obedience? Well, a difficult obedience is, according to Christ's example here, it's a painful obedience. What do I mean by that? I mean it hurts. It hurts to obey. It may hurt us physically. It may hurt us emotionally. It may hurt us relationally or materially, but it hurts. We don't like it. And what do we typically do when we experience pain? We say, that must not be what I'm supposed to do. God wouldn't ask me to experience pain. A difficult obedience kills something. And you can see it. You can see the impending death of that thing. And it might just be your comfort. It might be your reputation. It might be your wealth. It might be your entitlement. It might just be your preference. It could possibly, I guess, be your life. But you see it. A difficult obedience is a painful obedience. But a difficult obedience is also a sacrificial obedience. What do I mean? Well, it costs you, but more than that. It's not just that it's costly. A difficult obedience, I believe, if again, Christ is our example here, it's usually exclusively for the benefit of others. Like when God calls you to do something, even if it's something difficult, even painful, you go, well, I know I'm going to have this benefit. But what if the benefit is for them? Or for him or for her? And the only benefit you're going to have is pain. Yes, character growth. Yes, all these things. But when you step back and you go, God, I'm calling you to sacrifice. I'm calling you to lose that others might gain. This is the kind of obedience that forces you, God calls you to make others more important than yourself. Isn't that what Christ is doing? And newsflash, that's not easy for us. Right? That's the last thing I want to do because I want to be more important. A difficult obedience, it's not just painful and sacrificial, it's very inconvenient. It interrupts us. And what do I mean by that? Well, 
It'd be great if we could plan for obediences. You know what? I'll just kind of work that into my calendar. But the real difficult ones are the ones that are a speed bump to our normal rhythms. I mean our normal rhythms, not like our grand plans. I mean just on a daily basis. Unfortunately, but theologically, fortunately, God's calendar does not always link up with our own. But darn it, if we don't try to work our calendar around him, right? It's very difficult for us to submit to his timeline, and we force our own. Our obedience is difficult because it requires submission to God's will. And at times, it's inconvenient in that it ruins our plans, our schedules, and our dreams. But it's also characterized, if again we're using Christ, a difficult obedience is one that's irrational. It's an irrational obedience. And again, it's irrational in our flesh. It doesn't make sense to us. As much as we like to believe we're all-knowing, we're not. And I'm convinced if we knew everything that God knew in any given moment when we are called to obey in some way, we would understand. But alas, we don't. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to us. And so we play little games in our mind to go, this is why this is not the right path. Rarely does a difficult obedience make sense to us. We have 17 different ways that would be better, Lord. I understand. You're calling me to this. You're calling me to forgive this person or humble myself or serve or give or whatever. But have you considered, Lord, this path? This path? Because that one's painful. That's sacrificial. You know, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Look at all the other benefits from this, Lord. We play that game because it doesn't make sense to us. If God's wisdom is foolish to men, we always think, yeah, God's wisdom is foolish to the world. Well, sometimes it's foolish to us too. And in time, as we are humbled and maybe get a little older, we understand that it's true wisdom. But it's likely that many of our difficult obediences are not only going to be counter-cultural, they're going to be counterintuitive to us. Ah, gosh, you can't mean this. But the last one, which I think is probably most characteristic of what Jesus is experiencing here, is that a difficult obedience is a lonely obedience. It's only for us. Jesus is truly alone here. Even though he brought his friends to to support him, they're sleeping. And sometimes the most difficult obediences are the ones that only you and God know about. That no one will ever see. And that's where it's most tempting, right? When we get in groups of people, man, it's, you just take a group of teenagers at the mall, you see the dumb things that they will get each other to do. It's like, yeah, no, let's go. And the same is with obedience, right? When, but when you have people there to encourage you and to stir you on and to admonish you and all those things, but what happens when you don't? Those are the most difficult obediences where there's no one there to say, Stick with it. You can do it. This is right. Because typically we're going to go, oh, I mean, that hurts. That sacrifice that doesn't make sense. That's really inconvenient. Like, hey guys, what are you, 
It's just me and you, God. It's lonely. A difficult obedience is the one that only you and the Lord know about. And no one ever sees. Now, realize, of course, as Jesus, as, as we characterize that, and, and Jesus knows what the will of the Lord is. When he asks if there is any other way apart from this difficult obedience, guess what? He already knows there's not. He already knows there's not. And so you have to wonder why Jesus is saying these things. And, and certainly he could be speaking to his own soul, but he doesn't have the sinful flesh that we struggle with. I think more so he's probably speaking to us and training us how to speak to our own souls. Because if you look at Christ, as he declares God's will be done, he also is declaring belief that God's will and plan is greater than however else he might have imagined it unfolding. You see, Jesus' difficult obedience, I believe, is made less difficult because he's very genuine in how he feels about it. He's, he's expressing his true feelings, but at the same time, he declares truth about God. See, we either do one or the other, don't we? We're either like, I'm feeling like, oh my God, this is horrible, God. You don't say anything about God. Or you don't affirm that that's, that's painful. And I'm like, God be glorified. It's in his will. Purpose for good. You're like, yeah, but this stinks. Like, can we, can we have both? Is Jesus giving us permission to, like, have some anxiety about that? But the second thing I think is even more awesome is that the emphasis of his prayers, not, can I get out of this? As much as it is, your will be done. See, when Jesus says, your will be done, he is, in a very real way, declaring that, Lord, you can take whatever you got whatever you need. That his life is not his. Now, the other thing, which I didn't mention, is that he knows God's will. Catch that? He can say your will be done because he knows it. What I mean is he's read it, he's learned it, he's remembered it, he's even taught it. Ready for this one? This one's sting. God's will is not a mystery because he knows God's word. God's will is not a mystery to him because he knows God's word. And yes, even though he's stressed, even though there's anxiety, even though there's sorrow and the trouble, there is no surprise at a difficult obedience. Sometimes we're so shocked at suffering because we don't expect to ever suffer. 
Now, that begs the question, why is Jesus succeeds? Why is it so difficult for us? Why are difficult obedience so difficult? Because we struggle. And more than likely, Jesus has three different pleas to contrast with the three different denials that Peter is going to experience here in the next few hours. Prior to the disciples going into the garden, they're warned, look, you guys are all going to fall away. They don't believe him. They believe, I think, that they're stronger than they actually are and that the temptation to sin is probably weaker than it really is. The first time Jesus wakes up in his room, he tells them plainly, look, you guys got to stay awake. You got to fight temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's us. Even if we have a desire to fulfill a difficult obedience, our flesh is unprepared to obey. And there are many ways that our flesh is naturally unprepared for a difficult obedience. Think about some real practical ones. A difficult obedience is made more difficult when we're physically unprepared. Right? We are tired and tireless. We don't get enough sleep and we do too much. I think it's interesting that, that Matthew makes the point that their eyes were heavy. They were wiped out. Sometimes I wonder if we're not prepared to be poured out for Jesus because we've poured out all we have for everything but Jesus up to that point. But obedience, I think, is also difficult in our flesh because they're emotionally unprepared. And what I've described that as is they're joyful and clueless. And by joyful and clueless, I mean this. If you think about the end of the Passover meal, right? They just had an awesome experience. It began with Jesus washing their feet. They had this amazing meal. Jesus drops this bomb. It's like, new covenant. My blood. Forgiveness of sins. They're like, what? Right? They haven't even heard. They haven't heard what he said prior to that. I'm going to die, by the way. Don't worry. I'm going to be crucified and be delivered. Like, they haven't heard all they heard. Yeah, what do they do? Sing a song afterwards. Oh, praise the Lord. We're forgiven. It's going to be awesome, right? And in the midst of that meal, you know what they're arguing over? Who's going to be greatest in Jesus' kingdom? It's like, new covenant, sweet. He's going to be on the throne. I'm going to be his right hand. No, you're not, dude. You didn't even memorize Deuteronomy. I'm going to be on his right throne. Like, wait, whatever. They're arguing. Like, where's their mind? It's they're not prepared. And this is when difficult obediences most often come, when things are great. Right after a, an awesome high, they didn't expect this. But Jesus had told them plainly. They were emotionally unprepared because they were Pollyanna. Oh, things are wonderful. Even though Jesus so directly said, you're going to fall away, guys. They ignored much of what he said. And after a a spiritual high, if you will. That's when difficult obediences are most. But more than anything, I think, but Jesus means by the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our obedience is difficult because we're spiritually unprepared. And by that I mean, by nature we are prideful, and by nature we are prayerless. They go very much together. More than anything, these men are incredibly full of pride. None of the disciples, it's not that they didn't hear Jesus, they didn't believe him. 
They didn't believe him that he would be crucified. They didn't believe him that they would fall away. Peter was like, no way. I would die before I would deny you, Jesus. You know what it took Peter to deny Jesus? Some little girl come up and going, hey, um, do you know Jesus? No, I didn't know Jesus. Like, that was it. One little kid. Way to go, Peter, right? But I love Peter because he just, he, he tells like exactly what he's feeling. He reveals, he's like, his heart's out there and it, it's us. We're prideful. You should remember what Jesus told him to pray, right? Lead me not to temptation, but deliver me from evil. But they decided to sleep. Now, the question is, how do, how do we endure a difficult obedience? Well, we prepare like Jesus did, through prayer. And I know some of us are thinking, oh, where are you going with this? You'll see. Hebrews 5 says it this way, and I believe it's talking about this experience here. In verse 7 of Hebrews 5, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Right? Prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Sounds like the garden prayer. It says, And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, it says, He learned obedience through what he suffered. Whoa, that's like a theological gigantic bucket, right? He learned obedience through what he suffered. Stick with that. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, understand that Jesus didn't learn obedience in the same way we do. We typically learn obedience through the natural consequences of disobedience. Right? Don't touch that fire, it hurts. Ah! I won't touch that fire, right? That's how we typically learn about obedience in our flesh. That's not how Jesus learned. He was tempted, but he obeyed in every way. And Jesus didn't learn something new that he didn't already know. Okay? But Jesus did learn, in a sense, what was involved in following God as a man. And what is involved is this. Dependence upon God. That's the essence of prayer. That's the essence of prayer. Jesus succeeds in his difficult obedience because he communes with God during, even before, his experience. And, and how did Jesus express that dependence? I mean, what does the text say that he does? Well, the first thing he does, he prays on his face. I'm not calling us to pray on our faces, but guess what? That time may come. The time you see most often prayer on a face is really in the life of Moses in the Old Testament. 
And Moses was called to this incredible task to, to lead God's people. And every time he turned left, people were complaining about something. There's no water. There's no food. You want to kill us. And what do you do? Oh, Lord. You just go before the Lord. I don't know what to do. And at times, God would say, I'm going to kill them all. Start all over with you. And you go, no, Lord. That's a position of surrender. Those are the kind of things that difficult obediences bring out in you. Jesus here shows us what it looks like to completely humble yourself and surrender to God and depend on him for your obedience. And surrendering is not about giving up, right? Oh, I give up! In some sense it is, but it's more bowing down. It's bowing down. This is what Christ did, right? When when. As we see, you read it in 1 Peter as he is mocked and reviled and spit upon by men and mouths and tongues that he made. He is silent. And why is he silent? It says he suffered and he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. I trust you, Lord. This is horrible. I trust you, Lord. What else does he do, though? Think about this. He not only prays on his face, he prays in advance. He prays before the actual moment of difficult obedience. Now, for us, we're pretty reactionary in our prayer. Crisis hits. I'm going to pray now, Lord. Oh. As Jim Gaffigan says, you have cancer, and suddenly you're Chetty Cathy. Right? Haven't talked to me before this time. He pleads to God before things get difficult. He, dare I say, plans for difficult obedience. He plans for it. There's a lot that's going to happen before Jesus is actually nailed on the cross. He's going to get arrested. There's going to be an experience in the garden, a conflict. There's going to be a trial. He's going to go before the governor. And then he's going to be in front of the soldiers. And then he's going to be on the cross. And he is praying in advance for what's going to be difficult. He sees it. He knows it. He is praying for strength to endure it. How often do we pray like that? But he also prays, again, giving us an example to follow three times. Now certainly there's some metaphorical comparisons to to Peter's denial. But I think Plainly, he just communes with God repeatedly about the same thing. He pesters God about the same thing. And there are many things that we can and do ask God for. But I don't know how often we are asking him to help us with a difficult obedience. Now listen to that. I don't know how often we're asking him to help us endure a difficult obedience. It's my conviction that most of us, and I would include myself in this, our natural reaction to pray is we're asking him to change our circumstances so we can avoid a difficult obedience. That's not how Jesus prays. He doesn't pray, change the circumstances so I can avoid this. It's a prayer, God, don't, don't leave me. Be with me. 
Let's go through this. Prayer is how we prepare and endure a difficult obedience because more than anything, prayer is the most tangible way to surrender to God. Prayer involves everything. It involves our mind. It involves our emotion. It involves our will. It even can involve our bodies at times. And when we share in the sufferings of Christ like this, I think we too learn the true nature and blessing of obedience. It's very rare for us to look at a difficult obedience and go, hey, I know all these things are going to happen that are going to be wonderful. We go through that list of like, painful, costly, inconvenient, irrational. But Jesus wants to teach us the blessing of obedience. We don't mature. And anyone who has any kind of uh, life experience and wisdom that comes from suffering knows this. We don't mature as we depend on ourselves and only direct ourselves into what is comfortable, affordable, and convenient. We mature and grow as we endure what is painful, costly, and disruptive. Easy obedience, you know what? That's not unimportant. That's important. We're not talking about that kind of obedience. The difficult obediences are the ones that are transformational. The ones that that change us at a very deep soul level. And that's because they require Jesus to work in us and for us. Now, as I close, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. And so let me bring it full circle and remind us of the gospel. This is not a plea and a persuasion and an effort to make our obedience greater. It is a call for us to focus attention on Jesus' greater obedience. When we pray, we need to pray not for the power to do the right things for Christ. I don't think that's an evil prayer. But we're not to pray for the power to do the right things for Christ as much as for the power to believe the right things about Christ. See, the Gospel of John gives us the same story. A little different chronology, but this experience of Passover prior to it has a little more teaching than when we read Matthew. And right before the Passover, Jesus said this in John chapter 12, in verse 23, he said, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he's telling them, here's what's going to happen. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. More often than not, think about this. We disobey God's will, whether it be the difficult or easy, but we disobey God's will for our lives in order to get something that we think we need or not lose something that we think we have to have. And here's the crazy sinful irony. 
We can do the same thing with obedience. We can obey for the wrong reasons. We can obey in order to get something or not lose something. And oftentimes, that's related to whether God's going to love us or not. I'm going to obey because if I don't obey, you're going to hate me. Or I'm going to obey because I know there's reward. And and if I don't obey, I'm going to be rejected and no reward. This is what makes Jesus' obedience greater. Jesus' obedience is so great because it completely changes the nature of our obedience. What do I mean by that? Through faith in Christ's greater obedience, trusting that he obeyed where I failed in every way, I die with Christ and I rise with him. And Jesus takes all that I had, which was pretty much sin and poverty. And he gives me everything he has, which is righteousness and blessing as a son. Through faith in Christ's greater obedience, all fear of loss is gone. All fear of, I need to hold on to this because I might lose it, or I need to do this so I can get it. I've been given everything. Not only have I been forgiven of my past insufficiencies, I have been guaranteed a future greater glory with God. He has looked at me and said, you are my chosen. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are redeemed. You are blessed right now, and I will be with you forever in eternity. Your old life is gone. Your new life has come. Jesus' greater obedience makes my obedience greater. How? Because I no longer obey out of fear. I don't obey that, oh, I hope I'm good enough. I don't obey because I fear I'm going to be rejected. And I don't obey because if I don't, I won't get reward. I've got it all. I've been accepted. I've been blessed with riches beyond my imagination, so therefore I can now obey with a full heart, right? I don't obey out of emptiness, hoping to fill it up with something. I obey out of fullness and joy and delight. I'm no longer obeying for my own sake. I'm obeying for God's sake because my life is no longer my own. And according to Colossians, it is hidden in Christ. And please hear this. To the extent to which you understand that your life is found in Christ is the limit to what God can ask you to do. The extent to which you understand, the depth which you understand that your life is found in Christ is the limit to what God can ask me to do. Know this. Nothing can rise or be resurrected until it has completely died. And dying with Christ means simply this. Surrendering all control to Him. That is our most difficult obedience. 
And because our spirit is still willing, but our flesh is still weak, we celebrate communion every week. We celebrate communion every week because we need to do several things. One, we need to reflect on our great disobedience. We need to be reminded, blood, cross, that the depth of my sin required the death of the Son of God. And as we remember that, and remember that God knows that, we also celebrate and remember and participate in God's great love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We remember His greater obedience because we know our disobedience is still pretty great. This is the table of greater obedience. And I'll close with a passage out of Matthew 16 where Jesus earlier said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is not just one-time prayer preparation. That is a daily prayer, a weekly prayer. And that's what we'll pray. We will ask God if you will help us lose our life for the one who lost his for us. And let that transform us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your love. We praise you for your mercy and for your grace and for your patience and for your gentleness and for your great humility. Your Son came and did what we could not do. Father, our disobedience is great. And so we ask that you will help us find our life in Christ. You will help us recognize the weakness of our flesh. You will help us recognize our need for you. And more than anything, Father, you will give us a heart that is willing to surrender whatever we have to you, Lord. Let us not try to find our life here. Let us not try to disobey so that we can find something we think we need or hold on to something. Let us not obey for those same reasons. So let us obey because of what you have done through your Son for us. That in Christ, where we are hidden through faith, Lord, you see us as perfect. You see us as the ones who obeyed, just as your Son obeyed. Thank you for his obedience. And we ask that you look to him and not to our own disobedience for delight. Lord, thank you for the love you've shown us in Christ. And let us live and breathe and hope in that until his return. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.